You're listening to the 2006 NBA Redraftables on the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast. My name is Bill Simmons. Let's do it. All right, the 2006 redraftables. Chris Ryan is here. Joe House is here. This is one of the dumbest, dopiest drafts. Yeah, other than 2013, um, probably the dopiest draft of this entire century. We had a fir our first pick was named Andrea. We had six lottery whiffs. We had out of our top five picks, one guy became amnestied later, Tyrus Thomas. One guy was an iconic all-time bust, Adam Morrison. One guy became a internet punching bag and a despised New York Nick, Andrea Bargnani. And then the number five pick was a guy whose nickname was the landlord that I had totally forgotten <laughs> until uh until I did all the research for this. Lamarcus Aldridge was the only good top five pick out of this draft. Chris Ryan, this was also the last blog post of your Chauncey Billups blog, which has a new four hour documentary uh, about it coming up by Ken Burns. <laughs> um, what, what do you remember of this draft first when you think about it? I, it's intertwined with my experience uh, on basketball internet in like the first three or four years of the 2000s, where it was truly weird out there, you know, and people would just blog about the personalities that they were attracted to. And for as much as this, this 2006 draft is honestly like, it's probably a waste of this podcast's time to, to re, re, re litigate it. What an Island of misfit toys, man. And what, what a strange group of individuals to be in this lottery, much less this whole draft. And I remember those that night and just like, that was back when like basketball was like truly weird back then when, the, when guys like this would get picked, like Sheldon Williams would go in the, the top five or six picks of a draft. And you were just like, what am I doing with my life? I'm just watching this guy named the landlord get selected <laughs> house. Rosello and I, we did the 2005 redraftables and discussed. This is an epic, epic GM run of just terrible decisions across the board for five solid years. And you can feel a lot of them in this draft combined with one of the weirdest college seasons we've ever had, where it was basically the height of JJ Redick becoming like a Cobra Kai America's villain on Duke. And then this bizarre Adam Morrison thing going on. And all of us are like, wow, these are the best two players in college basketball. This is not a great sign for the draft. What else do you remember from that college season? I don't remember a, a lot from it. I um, think the overriding overwhelming uh, sentiment is what you guys have say, been saying, which is it was just crazy weird. It was so weird. I never thought that Duke team was very good, and yet they they won, right? They won the, the yeah. title that year. Um, I never thought that Sheldon Williams was was a wowzer kind of guy, and he got picked uh, uh, fifth in, in the draft. It was like it was th this draft. I think is proof of how hard the the draft is like how can you fault gms how can you fault teams 
for, you know, taking a swing on, on a bunch of guys. Um, you know, the track records here are all over the place. How, how can you possibly mine a diamond like Paul Millsap back in this era? This is the, this is the kind of takeaway for me. Yeah, and there, we don't really have the advanced metrics component yet. Even if you look, I don't want to spoil the redraft that we're doing later, but you have Rondo's the 21st pick, Kyle Lowry's 24th, Paul Millsap's 47th, P.J. Tucker's 35th, and these are all guys that would become like top eight or nine relevant guys, and then you go the other way with the top five where only one guy makes it. Um, I We knew it at the time. And this has only happened a couple of times with the draft. I think it definitely 2000, definitely 2013. And then this one where people are like, holy shit, get, hold on, hold on to your seats. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, this draft has some, some just legendary dumbass trades. So Chicago ends up with the number two pick because of the Eddie Curry trade that Isaiah Thomas made the previous summer where he gives up two unprotected first-round picks. The first one manifests itself as the number two pick in the entire draft. Chicago gets this insane dumb luck. Oh, my God. Can't believe this worked out for us. Now, it was too good to be true. They flipped the pick to number four Portland uh, for the rights to Tyrus Thomas and Victor Crappa. House, do you have a Victor Crappa joke? <laughs> it's, 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 yes, it's Victor Crappa. That's the joke. Well, that trade was crappa. Uh, Portland acquires the seventh pick from the Celtics, Randy Foy. Ray Flafrentz's contract, which ran for uh, two more years, or three more years, and uh, and Dan Dickow, in exchange for Sebastian Telfair, Theo Ratliff's contract, which was expiring a year sooner than Ray Flafrentz, which is why Boston wanted it, and a 2008 second rounder, we're going to go into it later, but this is about as angry as my dad's ever been on, on a draft week. He was just completely enraged. We'll cover it later. And then the other one that's nuts, Phoenix has the 21st pick. Marcus Williams is on the board, controversial point guard who uh, was had a whole least. thing at UConn. Stole some laptops. Let's let's just call it what it was. He was a laptop stealer. Uh, and then Rajon Rondo's on the board who everybody was like freakish athleticism, huge hands. He was one of the original uh, freak guys, um, but but had some some chemistry issues at Kentucky. We'll leave it at that. Phoenix has the 21st pick. They just trade it for a future Portland first rounder. Meanwhile, this is the height of Phoenix being great. They just could have had Rondo. They passed that up. Um, I, Chris, why were the GMs so bad? Is it like the internet hadn't properly bullied GMs yet for bad behavior? What was going on here? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I think is I remember sitting in the back of a of a wonderful record store called Mondo Kim's on St. Mark's Place in New York City and reading your columns back then. Like, and that was the first time that I was like, oh yeah, you know what? Somebody makes these decisions. Like these yeah. guys don't just appear in Sixers uniforms. And I remember that was a sort of like the, that you, you know, you were among the first people to introduce these ideas of like, these guys can actually screw teams up for years and we yeah. should be paying more attention to how they spend the team's money, how they put these teams together. When I look at this list of, I mean, I, I you know, and, and I actually like 
am nostalgic for the era of dumb GMs. I think yeah. we had a lot more fun when there were more David Kahn's and less Daryl Morey's. Now everybody's like, it's pretty rare when someone screws up on a monumental level. You know, this was the year I wrote the Atrocious GM Summit four, four months before. I think one common theme with a lot of this stuff, there's more ex-players running teams. This was still the last part of the era, House. You, House, I don't know if you know this, but you've had a couple ex-players run the uh, Bullets Wizards <laughs> to, to mix success. Oh. Um, I think what's happened by the time we get to 2020, it's, it's just a lot more smart people who didn't necessarily play basketball professionally. You know, and I, I think back then you think like you have Wes Unseld, Ernie Grunfeld, Isaiah Thomas. Um, it just goes on and on. Michael Jordan's making picks for Charlotte. And the wave is coming of the Daryl Morey, Sam Presti guys that are looking at it completely different, that are taking advanced metrics into account, that aren't bringing in ex-player biases of, oh no, this guy's talented, we can save him, things like that. House, would you rather have an ex-player or a smart person run your team? Just, this, I, I don't know, what's your pick? I mean, <laughs> the one thing I will say in, in reviewing this draft and thinking about it, the, the dearth of talent. This is really a talentless draft. I mean, yeah. there was one potential superstar in the draft and he got hurt. And that's it. Like Adam Morrison. <laughs> yes. And his name is Adam Morrison. That was my favorite part of Chris Ryan's uh, last blog post ever, by the way, was, was, what was it? What'd you call his outfit? Uh, I think I, I compared him to a guy greeting you at a Best Buy, but I have to go back and check the tape. <laughs> no, it was like you you, you called him like a, the, a rector, like, you know, a guy, like a priest oh, yeah. in a rectory. That's right. <laughs> well, you excellent. Know, remember how many Adam Morrison conversations we had in 06? This was still an era when people really, really cared about college basketball. And he was an incredibly fun college basketball player. Both him and JJ were, I, it's hard to, think of it this way now and JJ's turned into such a good role player but he was awesome to watch in college and the other schools really hated him and he's talked on his podcast about you know it was a tough thing for him to deal with as a 20 and 21 year old when you're getting hate heaped on you like that with Morrison this is Gonzaga's real official yeah. breakout as Dan hey, we're actually a big time program yeah and he was unlike any other college player he, he was buckets he was putting it up um we're now at the point of the conversation where I have to ask you guys, Adam Morrison, could he have made it if he didn't blow out his knee on the Hornets, Bobcats, whatever they, whatever Charlotte version they were at that point. I kind of liked him freshman year, our rookie year in Charlotte. I thought he had a couple decent moments and I think the knee injury just killed him. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a couple of guys in this draft who were drafted a couple of years too early there. I mean, there were probably a couple guys who were busts no matter what, but this draft is, is a really interesting snapshot of a time before I think people started getting a little bit more creative with how they, uh, how they developed talent in the NBA. So you've, you see a couple of guys here and you're just like, yeah, this is just someone just straight up drafting a power forward because they think they need some help on the boards. You know, yeah. And Morrison drafted in 2012 is just a much different player than he is in 2006. And he, he might have even succeeded in the era that he was drafted into if he hadn't gotten hurt. He, that was the worst possible situation for him 
based on what we now know was his, you know, particular kind of psychological makeup. Like he just, he, you know, as, as you said, Bill, he didn't have the, um, the disposition, the demeanor, the psychological wherewithal to be alpha. And they needed, MJ needed alpha out of that draft pick. And the funny thing is he showed a ton of alpha as a college basketball player. Like yeah. he was incredible at Gonzaga. I loved him. And I thought he was uh, going to have at least a good a, a career as, as somebody like Keith Van Horn. Like, you know, um, you know, that felt to me like his, his, uh, his basement, his, his, his floor. Um, but I think it was, you know, the injury obviously was the career alterer but if he landed somewhere where he didn't have that pressure and he got got picked you know later in the lottery in the 10 to 14 range i think he could have been successful in that era there were some red flags that we did not know uh had to take into account in the mid 2000s because even with him and i remember my column had really taken off at this point i had a lot of this is the first time i was really getting inside information from different people and that the 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 word on Morrison at Gonzaga was he was really fragile and they really protected him from the media. You know, he, he was almost like put in a bubble there because they were really, you know, worried about him. They were worried about what he could handle and they really sheltered him in a lot of ways. And that was the word even before the draft. And I think now in 2020, teams, the science of studying like just the brain and mental makeup of a player. And there's so much more emphasis now on mental health. There were real red flags with him. You throw him on Charlotte with a ton of expectations. Doesn't have a great rookie season. He still averaged 11 a game, but he's on a team with Gerald Wallace, Raymond Felton, Emeka Okafor. Um, and and it just, he gets the knee injury and he just kind of craters. I, I think he would have been put in a better position to succeed, but I also don't think he would have gone three because I think... I think teams would have been really concerned about some of the red flags with him coming out of uh, college. The, the Tyrus Thomas a, thing. Oh, good. With Morrison, though, it's also like that catch 22 where the most value is derived from him if he's a focal point of the offense, but the most pressure gets put on him when he's made the focal point of an offense. And also, if you're an NBA team and Adam Morrison is the focal point of your offense, where you're right, going. Right. The, uh, another guy that um, Tyrus Thomas ends up going in the top five. It's fueled. And by the way, I, I will fully admit I was completely wrong. I thought he was going to be a good pro. One of the reasons I thought that was he was awesome in the tournament. And it was a classic case of the guy lighting it up for two weeks in March Madness and everybody going, oh, this guy. And it was just a dick tease house. We've gotten sucked into those guys over and over again. That was a classic March Madness, almost like a contract year, like when Jerome James had his contract year and ended up making thirty million in the playoffs. It was the college equivalent of that. I think people are more hip to that now, um, getting getting seduced by two good March Madness weeks. Yeah, I mean, we've acknowledged it a bunch of times doing these redraftables that back in in that era and and even really especially in the late nineties, we used performance in the NCAA as a um, highly weighted uh, indicator of, of potential future success because, you know, the logic, and I think it's not crazy logic, was that um, on the biggest stage in front of, you know, with the sort of highest amount of pressure, um, seeing these guys perform there should be a, a, a reliable 
kind of indicator of how they're going to um, withstand that same kind of pressure once they're in the NBA. Maybe don't take somebody from LSU is a good draft strategy. <laughs> hey, the, uh, unless his name is Shaq. <laughs> the number one pick of this draft, Andrea Bargnani. None of us were that excited about when it happened. And I and when we do the redraftables, I want to go into his whole career. But here's here's how people felt when it happened. Jay Billis at the draft says, a solid prospect with a chance to be a solid player. Red flag number one. Then he says later in the draft, this is before he's even been taken, he does not rebound, he does not post up, he is not physical, he needs to work on his body. That's how bad this draft was. This guy was the uh, number one pick. House and I were going nuts because we love Brandon Ryan in college. And that- we were just like, here is the one guy in this draft, other than JJ, who I, I think we both felt was, we knew at least he was going to be a valuable player. We didn't know if he was going to be a star. But Brandon Roy was like, we know what he is. He's a guard who's going to be able to create a shot. He had a very identifiable kind of crossover hesitation move that was just like, well, in the NBA, he's going to score 20 a game. I wrote um, when Minnesota took him sixth, I wrote in the diary with the six pick Minnesota somehow ends up with the best player in the draft. Brandon Roy, funny how it always works out that way with the new rules and his hesitation move alone. He's good for 16, 18 points a game next season and three or four all-star appearances down the road. That was exactly what happened. What we didn't know, we didn't have the intelligence um, that his knees were like every, every good medical staff that looked at him was like, that guy's got five years. And so there was a real shelf life. And yet Chris, an iconic four or five years for him. Oh yeah. I mean, some of the most like breathtaking moments of that, of that NBA era, I associate with Brandon Roy. It's missed him. Missed actually really enjoyed how unique his game was. Oh God. Okay, you know, Don't and you I, miss I think some of these guys, man, like I miss these types of players. Cause you think like Aldridge is in this draft, still growing strong. He's on San Antonio. He's going to be a free agent after this season. And you think like we could have had 15 years of Brandon Roy. We basically got four and it wasn't like he did anything wrong. It was just his body. There was a whole thing about he was missing an ACL and all these different things, but the Celtics had the uh, seventh pick and um, that their team doctors basically, I, I think they've talked about this, but this is what I was told by my Boston people. Like the team doctors were just like, you can't take this guy. He's going to be out of the league by the time he's, 26, 27. Do you think uh, that there's anything to the idea of the way like we have a better understanding of, of like how to get guys healthy? Like, is there anything that could have saved Brandon Roy? I mean, you're not a doctor, but like the way that the Sixers put guys on ice for a year or two here and there, is there anything that could have been done to prolong or save Brandon Roy's career? I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I don't know if it would have, you know, 100% saved his legs, but I'm sure there's a scenario where it, Odin's the other one, you know, we'll, we'll do Odin when we do Oh seven, but, um, the Odin stuff was very, very basic things that could have saved him, right? His legs weren't the same size. Now they would know, Oh, just wear these sneakers. It'll even out, you know, then your body won't be off kilter and things like that. It's weird. We weren't thinking this way in, uh, in 2006, but we weren't, uh, one other note, we should talk about Rondo goes 21 and Lowry goes 24. Um, I didn't like when the Celtics traded for Rondo. Here's what I wrote. The list of NBA teams that won an NBA title with a point guard who couldn't shoot looks like this. And then the list was just all empty. <laughs> but then I added, on the other hand, my Celtics moles told me that Rondo absolutely destroyed Randy Foy and Marcus Williams in their workout a few weeks ago. So who knows? 
They win a title with him two years later. <laughs> I think he's one of my better draft diary performances. It's a great reverse jinx. There is an yeah. argument to be made, and I'm sure we can make it. If we were going to do not, okay, the entire career that this guy's had, but if we were going to say the best version of these players, how would you redraft them? I, I think national TV Rondo is in the conversation for the number one pick. Wow. Well, I'll tell you this. Well, we'll uh, I want to save some of the Rondo stuff for when we get to them, but I'll tell you this. His rookie year, which was a train wreck, and they're tanking for Tim Duncan basically two months in. And Rondo was clearly good. And it was almost like inexplicable that they weren't playing him more. And I do think they sacrificed some of his rookie year because it was like when he was on the court, good things would actually happen. And, you know, he just, you could, you could just see something. It was not surprising to me when they do the KG trade, they, he, they made, it was the one piece they wouldn't put in because Minnesota's like, give us Jefferson, give us Rondo. And they're like, you're not getting Rondo. We actually think we can win the title if he's in our seven man rotation. So that happened. Uh, some comedy from this draft. Here's what I wrote on the Ty Thomas pick quote in the draft diary. I love that pick for them. <laughs> and not just because of, he's a freakish athlete with a seven foot three wingspan. You can go to war with Ty Thomas. Where, where I don't did know you what get war that I was talking about. What are you talking about? <laughs> what war, what war was that? Star Wars? I think it was the, Fal the Falcon, the Balkan Islands, Falcon Islands. What was the Falkland crisis? Uh, um, another one was, uh, they had a whole debate about Rudy Gay's potential because Rudy Gay starts sliding, which was actually dumb. I mean, Rudy Gay was talented. We were all frustrated with him. UConn, there was a whole rap that he that he didn't care enough. Um, Greg Anthony argued that Gay will be better than people think. Stephen A is on this draft, and it was clear he had to watch much basketball. Stephen A countered, I haven't seen him play that much. And that was the argument. Steven is <laughs> one of the people on this draft. I haven't seen them play that much about Rudy Gay, who was a top eight pick. Um, Randy Foy, everybody was really excited about, including, I think, us, because we liked him at Villanova. Uh, at some point, they're talking about the pick. He goes seventh, and then they they Minnesota and Portland flip six and seven, and uh, Portland gets Brandon Roy. Dickie V comes in. Dickie V is somehow involved in this draft, too. And he comes in, and he goes, He's Dwayne Wade, baby! <laughs> <laughs> this is after Dwayne Wade had just won the 2006 title. And Dickie mm. V's like, he's Dwayne Wade. So that was rough. Tough one. Um, Stu Scott was doing the interviews. He interviewed Patrick O'Brien, who went ninth. And he said, this is how he started the interview. Before the NCAA tournament, nobody knew who you were. What's the best thing about your game, Bryant, that people don't know? <laughs> it's called a Bryant. That was a rough moment. Um Remember Sayer Sene? Yes. Seven foot eight wingspan. Seattle jumped on him at number 10. And there's a story that I had in the draft diary that I researched, which was true, that they had taught him how to make a layup off his correct foot 12 months before. And then House, he'd played in a Belgian professional league the season before the draft. He averaged three points a game. Were there red flags in your opinion here? <laughs> I mean, the amazing thing is that after that kind of a resume and with that kind of, of uh, background, that some uh, number of years later, Yi Jing Lang got drafted. Yeah, I one mean, year he, later. He was, the, he was the first. Sene was... was, was Sene, the, he, Zai, paved the, the he paved the way. He paved the way for <laughs> Yi Jing Lang, the chairman. Well, there's, a good, 
there's a good what if here because Seattle, Reddick's still on the board at that point. If Seattle takes Reddick, they had Ray Allen and then Durant's coming in 07. They could have just kept, they could have had just all three of those guys on the same team and had like the first ridiculous three point team. Or does Reddick make them good enough so that they miss Durant? Oh, good point. Well, I'll tell you who didn't make them good enough. Sayer Sine. Um, <laughs> So then we were all rooting for the Knicks to take Marcus Williams. Controversial pick. Uh, (laughs) Point guard. I had a joke in the draft. I'm still proud of 14 years later. He's leading all NBA rookies in steals right now. Good one. (laughs) Thank you. I'll be here all week. Um, Dan Patrick was the narrator of this draft and had like a kind of some tension with Stern. And at one point, Utah was on the clock. They made the pick. Stern didn't come out, and Patrick was doing where where'd he go jokes. Stern emerged and said, Dan, I was sitting in the back listening to your pithy comments. <laughs> He's the word pithy. Did Dan Patrick ever do another draft? No, never seen again. <laughs> um, and then there's the iconic moment of this draft, and when it really went to another level, was uh, the Knicks were on the clock at 20. Marcus Williams is on the board. And again, people thought Marcus Williams was like a top 10 pick before the laptop stealing thing. Rondo's on the board. The Knicks don't have a point guard. They have, it's like they're in that Steve Francis, uh, Marbury, just like it's just headed off a cliff and why not take a young point guard? And they take Ronaldo Balkman. And I don't know as the years pass, if the humor has stayed in place the way it did in the moment. But this was at a time of Isaiah's GM reign where the sex stuff was already going on. He'd, he'd made a whole bunch of terrible trades and we had now reached a point where it's like anything was possible with the Knicks draft pick. And when they took Balkman, it actually delivered. It was as good at, at, from a comedy standpoint as we ever would have wanted. And then they cut for some reason uh, Stern said, Ronaldo is not here. The crowd's <laughs> booing. The crowd's going crazy. And Dan Patrick goes, and it's probably a good thing. And then they cut right to Spike Lee, who's just like, looks like he just lost his dog. And that was the New York Knicks in uh, 2006. So that was great. Um, that's really about it. Other than Marcus Williams had, uh, they, they had 14% body fat down for Marcus Williams, which should have been a red flag. I think that's what House is weighing it at right now. That's how it's um, on, like, after after a trip to Momofuku, he's at 14%. 14% body fat's high. Yeah. Anyway, all right, let's do the redraft. So I had, uh, from a crapshoot rating, I had this draft as a 9.5 out of 10. It's just an incredible redraft from where guys were taken. Who wants the first? Uh, let's give Chris the first pick because this was the uh, the final Chauncey Billups blog blog spot draft. Um, he earned the it. first pick. I I am gonna probably go a little bit controversial, and I'm gonna go Kyle Lowry. Wow! Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> that is controversial. Stunning. Uh, first of all, loved him on that four guard Nova team with yeah. uh, Mike Nardi, Alan Ray, Randy Foy. Uh, I that 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 was like a real precursor to offenses to come. I think he's got a ring. Uh, I think that he has really been an example of what you can do in the second half half of your career. Uh, to, if you change your body a little bit, 
I, you know, and you can make the argument that his, his a lot of his success is due to Kawhi, but I I thought he's had um I I I overall feel like he has had a more memorable and impressive career than Lamarcus. Well, here's the irony of that pick. Toronto had the first pick in the real draft. Yeah, and uh, I should have done this. I'm I'm sorry to the listeners. Here's how the actual draft went: Toronto, Bargnani, Chicago, took Aldridge, traded him to Portland. Morrison third, Portland's pick and four trades it to Chicago. Ty Thomas, Atlanta fifth, Sheldon Williams, Minnesota six, Brandon Roy flips him to Portland for number seven, Randy Foy, Houston eight, Rudy Gay, Golden State nine, Patrick O'Brien, Seattle takes Sine, Orlando eleven with Reddick, and then it gets goofy after that. So you have Toronto ending up with Kyle Lowry anyway. How yeah. did you think of that pick? Well, the the. Problem is, it took Kyle a little while to get going. Like, he didn't start every game uh, until 2014. He didn't make an all-star team until 2015. And this is, we're talking about the 2006 draft. So uh, you need to be a team that has eight or nine years worth of patience for that <laughs> number one pick to, to, to pay off. Now, he's he's really validated that, that selection over the last five years. I mean, you know, incredible. At House, this sort you, of you got to trust the process. You got to trust the process. <laughs> what hell of a process, Chris Ryan. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I, I couldn't do Kyle at that spot. So this is the same year Daryl Morey takes over the Rockets, which we probably should have mentioned at the top. He's running the draft for the first time, ends up making the controversial Rudy Gay for Shane Battier trade, which eventually became a giant Michael Lewis feature. And is really like um, the first Moneyball moment for the NBA, where somebody's breaking down Shane Battier's all his glue guy stats, and decides that's more valuable for the team we have than Rudy Gay's potential. And it's the it's honestly the first trade like that of the thing. I knew Daryl, um, and we've talked about it on the on these pods going back when he was at the Celtics, took the Houston job, talked to him a lot during this time. And I remember he asked me for advice when he took the job. And my advice was this. Find the dumbest GMs possible. <laughs> call them all the time. <laughs> There's a lot of them. And that would be the easiest way to improve your team. So he trades, uh, he trades uh, for Kyle Lowry in February 2009. Kyle Lowry was somebody we all liked. He was buried on that Memphis team. He, he They had had Mike Conley. Mike Conley was a top five pick a year later for them. And it was Mike Conley's team. And Lowry's just trying to fit in. And he gets Kyle Lowry. He gives up Rafer Alston to Orlando. Um, Memphis ends up trading Kyle Lowry. And Memphis, it looks like they got Adano Foyle, Mike Wilkes, and a 2009 number one pick to Memphis. And he gets Kyle Lowry. And I remember talking to Dow after. I'm like, you motherfucker, you figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> you traded with Chris Wallace. Smart move. Way to go. But mm. he steals Kyle Lowry. But House is right. It took a while. Yeah. And, you know, we did the 2005 draft. We were talking about how Lou Williams has basically two careers where he's like, kind of like Jamal Crawford with less PR for the first nine years of his career. And then as the league changes, he becomes this weapon, this free throw three point weapon. And Lowry is another good example of, you know, he, if you look at, 
I had him second in the redraft, just for the record. But you look at him from just 2014 to 2020. So it's basically year nine of his career on. He's 18, seven and five. He's 38% from three and a good defensive player too. Um, it's defensible. Six all-star teams made a third team all NBA, but most important is a good example of somebody who wins the title and his whole career trajectory is just going to be looked at differently forever. He's, they don't win that title. You don't take him with the first pick. No. Although I mean, the I would be is, tempted because you went to Cardinal Doherty high school in Philadelphia. Well, that's, so. I, yeah. You have your Philly <laughs> stuff. Um, he wins the title and it basically takes all the baggage away, whatever baggage we had with Kyle Larry. It's it, an incredible title. He was awesome. And yeah. In that final game, put his ball at that whole series. He put his balls on the table, but especially in that last game, he really won my respect. Um, house LaMarcus Aldridge just landed in your lap at the number two pick. You want him? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take him. I mean, a, a steady contributor performs at a high level through, throughout his career. Nice number of all-star appearances, couple all NBA teams, you know, kind of a throwback player. He, he might have been better in the, like the first part of the nineties, his face up yep. ability, um, you know, and the, the pace of play back then, but look, he's still playing here, you know, 14 years on and making contributions. He's still one of San Antonio's best three players. So, you know, I, I, I feel pretty good about taking LaMarcus at this spot. It's funny at the time we were lukewarm on him in this draft because we, there'd been this history of these six eleven guys that weren't quite centers um, there was still some Charles Smith residue, the Knicks, the Knicks guy, <laughs> just a really soft 18 and seven, but you couldn't count on him when it mattered. And we just had such a bad history with these guys. I wasn't a huge fan. I, I never was impressed by him at, in Texas, but he's a good example. Like Rosilla was talking about in 2000, in the 2005 draft, some guys fill out in good ways and bad ways, right? Like we were talking about in the 2005 Thing about how Marvin Williams was this really athletic, lanky six foot nine freshman at UNC, but then he filled out and he just had this really heavy lower body and it, it kind of changed who he was. Aldridge filled out in good ways. Like he really became a kind of a modern low post guy, you know, is never like a get in the block, but from 10 to 12 feet was really good. One of my favorite games is to just go, go through, uh, college teams and just play a little bit of a what if with what if this guy had stayed a year and we did miss like a pretty incredible Texas Longhorns team with LaMarcus because that was KD comes the year later and if if everything kind of breaks right you might have a, a Texas Longhorns team albeit one coached by Rick Barnes that has KD, PJ Tucker, Daniel Gibson and LaMarcus and, wow. and yeah. So he's 19 and a half and eight rebounds a game for his career. Two second All NBA, three third team All NBA. He's only won four playoff series ever, only one in Portland. Uh, 2014 playoffs, which was a year before his free agency, was really his breakout. And I remember doing countdown that year, us doing segments about is Lamarcus Aldridge one of the best players in the league now? Shit like that. In the playoffs, he was 26 and 11. And this is two playoff series. They beat Houston, and then they lost to uh, San Antonio in six. San Antonio ended up winning the title. That was when Dame was really coming on too. Dame finished the uh, Houston series with the buzzer beater. And then a year later, he left to go to San Antonio. And there was all kinds of stuff about he he didn't like that Portland was becoming Dame's team. 
all that stuff. Um, it was like billboards, right? It was like he, they, they were replacing him with Dame on the billboards. And apparently he really wanted to go to the Lakers and they fucked it up. And he ends up he ends up in San Antonio. When he goes to San Antonio, we don't know that Kawhi is going to become Kawhi yet. And you think like they had a couple decent teams, but that 2017 Spurs team that was ready to go toe to toe with the Warriors that that year was probably his best chance to, I don't know if they would have beaten that Warriors team. I don't think they would, but that would have been a slugfest. That series, Kawhi gets hurt in the first game. We never know. I'm going to give you the best forwards of 2000, of the 2010s. You tell me where LaMarcus ranks. LeBron, Durant, Kawhi. He's not better than any of those three. Here, here are the candidates for the fourth spot. Blake Griffin, Paul George, Carmelo Anthony, Anthony Davis, Kevin Love, LaMarcus. Who'd you have in the fourth spot? Davis? Yeah, me too. It's not. It's a no-brainer to me. It's Anthony Davis. Agree. I would have Blake in the fifth spot. I agree with Blake, that. Blake, Blake in 2015 was the third best guy in the league. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So now it's Paul George, Carmelo, Kevin Love, or Lamarcus for the sixth spot. I think I'd go George. Me too. I'm with Chris Ryan. Paul George, just because of um the defensive uh offering that he represents. So now it's Kevin Love, who's really, really peaks there for a couple years and then moves into something else. Carmelo, who peaks the first three, four years of the decade, then tails off. And then Aldridge, who's been pretty steady the whole way. I, I would give the edge to Aldridge out of those guys. So I would say he's the seventh best forward of the decade. Hmm. That's pretty good. It's not, not bad. bad. Yeah. Not bad for a draft pick. All right, I'm on the clock with the third pick. My scouts really took this seriously. We uh, we looked at a lot of Rajon Rondo tape. Looked at some J.J. Redick tape. Uh, really, really did some background work on, on Rudy Gay. Took Paul Millsap out for a nice long dinner. Talked to him for a while. Um, really looked at Brandon Roy. Thought about him. And where we landed was Rajon Rondo. Ah, yes. Here's the case. 2009 to 2012 playoffs, 66 games. The Celtics are a contender every one of those years. They almost win in 2010, and he's the best player in the team that year. In those playoff games, 66 playoff games, 16, 10, and 7, 46% field goal, 2.1 steals. Outplayed Derrick Rose in 2009. Derrick Rose a rookie. But more importantly, outplays LeBron in 2010. And this is LeBron... Second year of a back-to-back MVP. LeBron up 2-1 in the series. And Rondo takes it over and wins the next three. And he's the best player in that series. This is a bad thing for LeBron's GOAT campaign, by the way. Because you you feel like, all right, he's the GOAT. Well, that one year when Rajon Rondo (laughs) outplayed him in the fucking playoffs kind of hurts the case. Um, Also, third-team All-NBA. And I think it's important to remember, he he got hurt. He blew out his ACL right as he was really at his peak. And I I feel like that cost him a year and a half was never quite the same. So add everything up. And the fact that he really national TV Rondo playoff Rondo, somebody you could really go to war with in a playoff series. And I think he's the third pick house. I would have gone Millsap, but I understand the, the, the case for Rondo. 
Um, I mean, I Mil- Millsap, his career was immensely helped by landing in Utah at an established, you know, a team that makes the playoffs every year with a culture and a support system, you know, institutional integrity is the way I like to call it. So, yeah. you know, Millsap on a different team, can he blossom that way? I don't know. But Rondo turns out we had this, we knew this about him from college. He's a motherfucker. And you know what? That's a valuable thing, it turns out. He is the diametric opposite of Adam Morrison in terms of his competitiveness and his basketball. Now, I don't want to say basketball IQ, but like his psychological um, competitiveness, his ability to jump in and, you know, just basically say, F all y'all, I'm, I'm going to do my thing. And now that translates into him not being able to coexist in a lot of different uh, circumstances. You know, the, the, the Dallas situation will be a, a go down as an all-time uh, abortion. But, you know, Ray John's resume is strong. And I, yeah, he's how, got you, three you years. Backed off the, you backed off the basketball IQ thing, but I, 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 there are a few smarter players that I've seen on a basketball court. Like when yeah. you, if you get a chance to ever sit close to a court while Rondo's playing, you can hear him calling out sets. You can hear him calling out opposition defensive sets that you, he will like be playing D and just be like, "This is the play they're running." It's uncanny. It's too bad because. You know, he has the ACL thing, ends up in that weird Dallas situation, goes to Sacramento, that sucked. Ends up in Chicago, that was also awful. And then uh, kind of gets rejuvenated for that one really fun New Orleans year with Davis, where it kind of unlocked him again. And I do think he's a great example of had to be on the right kind of team with the right kind of players. He had very high expectations for everybody else. He's openly a dick if if he wasn't happy with where he was. And the other thing is the league started to shift against him a little bit, you know, and and his inability to shoot, which he got a little bit better at, you know, starting in 2015, he's at least like over 33% as a three point shooter. All those are wide open. So he wasn't like a catastrophe, but you know, is a guy that really would have made more sense in the eighties and nineties. I feel like, you know, when, when the game was just played much closer to the basket and the, the stuff that he was doing, just the league kind of changed on him. He was also, the other thing that that happened that was really too bad is he was just a bad free throw shooter and never got better at it. I don't know whether it was because his hands were too big or what, but if you look at, you know, in 2009 and 2010, he's at least averaging three and a half free throws a game. Not great, but at least he's trying to get to the line. That dips to the point that, by the time he hits the second half of his career, he's basically not going the free throw line at all. I mean, he has in Dallas, he shot 0.9 free throws a game. He's, he's doing everything he can not to have contact. And I think the book was out on him by the second half of his career that when he drove to the basket, he's dishing. Yeah. He's not going to try to bounce off guys. He's not going to try to finish because he didn't want to get fouled. And I, I think to me, he's one of like the top five guys I can remember. Nick Anderson's one. Antoine Walker's a good one. Um, guys who just didn't want to get fouled and it changed how they played. House was the opposite. House loved the contact. Searching for contact. He, he loved it. It was oh, so an easy way to pad the stats. He wasn't afraid, especially in intramurals. He wasn't afraid to lurch into guys. Like House oh. wanted to go to the line. Rondo was the opposite. So I, 
I actually, I, I weirdly feel like this wasn't the best version of his career. I think there's a different version that's just better than what we ended up with, but it was still really good. Yeah, he's obviously a coach guy. He's obviously a guy who really mattered who who wound up being the coach. And it wasn't necessarily always the better coach. I mean, Carlisle is obviously one of the best coaches we've had in the NBA in a long time. And, and those guys couldn't be near each other. So yeah, right. I you know, the the sort of environmental stuff with with Rondo, it's like crapshoot. I have no idea who who he would have thrived under. Well, the, the observation I want to make is there could still be another, maybe it's not a full-length chapter, but half chapter for Rondo in these playoffs coming up that we're going to have in the 2020 season. Right? right. He's healthy now, and that Lakers situation is absolutely perfect for him to flourish and for him to make a, an impact. And Chris, you've said it a couple times, it, it's prime time Rondo time. Oh, God. Like, he's going to, he might play a really meaningful role in, in how the, the Lakers um, end up in this 2020 playoffs. Well, he, he can't be better than LeBron, so that's good. <laughs> I've been saying for years that national TV quarantine Rondo was the most dangerous player in the NBA. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. The uh, If Rondo had gone third in this draft, that means Charlotte would have taken him, which means Michael Jordan and Rajon Rondo would have been in each other's lives so you could tell me that they actually would have fought to the death over a connect four game, <laughs> or you could tell me that it would have been the greatest thing that ever happened to both of them <laughs> where Jordan's like, this is my soulmate. This guy hates his teammates as much as I did. He's super competitive. This is my guy. And Rondo just would have been like a 19 time all-star in Charlotte. And, and we would think of Jordan as this great owner. Maybe so it, good... like Charlotte could be like an Italian soccer team where Rondo's <laughs> just getting the coach fired every three months. Right. And they're like, Charlotte's on their 19th coach of the year. <laughs> this guy who used to work at an Arby's uh, and coaches <laughs> AAU, but Rondo <sighs> seems to like him. Like... Rondo was impressed by him in a Connect Four tournament online. All right, Chris, you have the fourth pick in the draft. This was the pick that uh, was technically Portland, and then they traded up. Who do you have? Yeah, I'm going to go Millsap here, even though I'm I'm bored even saying the two words, Paul Millsap. It's funny. I had him sixth in my redraft, but I think it was out of pure boredom. Solid guy. 17 and 8 from 2011 to 2017. Four all-star teams. Um, I think that was partially had to do with the forwards were just loaded in the West and pretty pretty weak in the East for the most part. Uh, for a 47th pick, really couldn't have turned out better. And yeah. I can't think of anything else to say. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a, a cool kind of uh, bridge player, like as a, a member of that uh, Bud Hawks team and the, the move into pace and space and move into into the sort of drunk on threes NBA. But I, I, I feel bad, but I just can't muster a lot of like poetry about Paul Millsap. House, you're on the clock at five. Um, I'm going to take Brandon Roy here. Oh, I th I think that five years of Brandon Roy is the functional equivalent of the longer careers of of some of the guys that came after him. I mean, the, the, this this five spot, the eligible candidates are like JJ, which is you know totally uh, legit. Um, uh, who, who else? Rudy Gay, you know, yep. uh, PJ Tucker, I guess I'll just take Brandon Roy right here. He made, he won rookie of the year and he missed 25 games that year. 
He was an all-star by his second season. He made two all-NBA teams in his five years. So you're basically, you know, evaluating with all of the information we have now. What can I get in this five-year window that I have of of Brandon Roy? Um, is it is it enough with the other pieces that I have around me? And at that stage, this was an Atlanta pick, right? Am I right? The f- fifth pick overall was Atlanta. Yeah. So they had Josh Smith and uh, Joe Johnson at, at that point. Like, what a dynamic scoring team uh, in the East at that moment. So I, I, I just, you know, go ahead and take a swing is, is my view uh, with this draft. Pod listeners can't tell this, uh, but Joe House just said all of that with a picture of John Wall behind him. So you know he knows what he's talking about when he's discussing leg injuries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brandon Roy's first four years, 25 and five, 47% field goal, 35% from three, 80% from free throw. For, he made an all NBA second team, which is really impressive. That means I am one of the 10 best players in the league during an era where there were some really good guards, you know? So you, you have Kobe in the league at that point. You have Chris Paul, Darren Williams, Tracy McGrady, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he made a, he made a third team all NBA, made three all-star teams. And, you know, this is this is uh, you know, a little out there, but he in the 09 playoffs, he plays a six-game series against Houston and they lose. He averages 27 a game in that series. If you're averaging 27 a game in a playoff series, you're legit. And, you know, I the Portland's just taken so many hits over the years. You think about like Greg Oden, Sam Bowie, they walked into um, Bill Walton, Brandon Roy, the, the, the talented guys that just, it's almost like uh, the Bermuda triangle in a lot of ways. What, what was a real bummer about this was what a great guy he was. And, you know, I, I, I hate sometimes when the talking heads talk about like great guys, character guys, whatever, but, this was a, like a model citizen, awesome guy who kept having bad luck in his basketball career, but really handled it with real dignity. And when he had that moment in the playoffs, what was it? 2011 when he's hurt. Yeah. When, uh, what series was that? Was it Denver? Yeah, I think it was Denver. Cause I remember it being kind of like a, a an interdivision playoff series. And he has, Oh, it was, I'm sorry. It was Dallas. Oh. It was the 2011 Dallas series. And it's a really weirdly pivotal moment with that Dallas team because Dallas goes to win on the, win the title that year. But they're favored in this Portland series. Brandon Roy is on really his last legs at that point. And Portland wins two in a row at home to tie, to, uh, tie the series. And in one of those games, Brandon Roy has 24. And, um, and the crowd is just out of their mind out of their mind because he has this throwback, awesome, outduels Dirk Nowitzki. We come out of that game four, it's 2-2, and everybody's like, fucking Dirk, what a choker. Typical fucking Dallas. Fuck this team. These guys are cowards. Um, And then they win the next two, and then they go on to win the title. And it was really like the last time Dallas got sucker punched like that by somebody. But that's one of my favorite random games from this decade, that one last Brandon Roy throwback awesome game the crowd loved him so anyway i want to well i just want to make one observation i was i wanted to make sure i gave credit where it was due 
you got to hook up Portland for getting arguably the two best players in, in this draft. And they were a 50-loss team coming into this draft. And two years later, we're a 54-win team. And I think it's some common – Kevin Pritchard was heavily involved. And uh, Steve Patterson Tom Penn too. took over from John Nash. Um, but, you know, th- 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 in a draft that we started off this podcast talking about how weird it was in the first place – how uh, uh, talentless it was and how all over the map the talent was for Portland to go get the two best players, shout shout out to the Trailblazers. Yeah. Well, and as we covered in the 05 draft, they completely shit the bed in 05 because they had the third pick with Chris Paul and Darren Williams on the board and traded down three spots for Martel Webster, Linus Kleza, and a future number one that became Joel Freeland. So that was like, this is like a Jekyll and Hyde thing with the new administration. Um, although I know House was high on Joel Freeland. The, uh, <laughs> I think Joel Freeland was high also. <laughs> the sixth pick, I'm on the clock. I'm going to take our guy, JJ. So, first of all, averaged 13 a game for his career. Um, a 41% career three-point shooter. And somebody who, as the league evolved over the course of the decade, um, it evolved in all great ways for him. And he ends up, he's a 41.6 career three-point shooter. Is somebody that if it's a good team, he's a huge asset. And for basketball fans, really frustrating first few years in Orlando for him where it just didn't feel like he was playing enough and it didn't really make a lot of sense. And we covered this in a previous book of basketball pod with that 2009 finals. Just so weird that they didn't space the floor with him more. Uh, Doc Rivers was the first one that really got it. Who was like, if we get this guy, I'm basically getting what I had with Ray Allen in Boston. This guy who's just constantly running around screens, who is creating space for Blake Griffin. And he just figured it out. And JJ has been an asset ever since. But I think, one great thing with him is just the the longevity of just he's still going. I mean, he, yeah. he he'll probably play for another six seven years. So you get JJ House took four and a half years of Brandon Roy. I totally get it. I'm getting like 21 years of JJ Redick, plus an incredible podcaster. I get all his multimedia too. <laughs> That's right. I'm when I draft JJ, I'm smart enough to also get all his media stuff. So it's a win all the way around. I think you're right. Like we haven't even gotten to the late period Kyle Corver of JJ's career yet. Like JJ's no. still weaving his way through four screens per set. Like we haven't gotten to the like I'll trail and just just drill this open three after somebody gets penetration. You know? Oh yeah. That's He's going to be able to play like career. eleven minutes a game and just score nine points that might push you over the top. Yeah, that's a, it's an awesome point. He's still fast. That's that's I think the point you're making, Chris. And and in view of he's also an avowed foodie. Loves loves to eat. Another very relatable thing about him. Likes to eat at all the best places. Has had many great food people on his podcast. I admire that engine, that running engine uh, that he has to feed with good fuel. Great job, JJ. <laughs> I'll tell you this. He's a top three NBA player going nuts during the quarantine because he's been knocked out of his routine guy. (laughs) (laughs) This is, he's just somebody whose whole day was structured and goes to the gym and, and not being able to just do, do normal stuff. Those those shooters are a different breed where it's just like at three 30, 
I will shoot 793s in these seven spots <laughs> and then I'll be done at five. I'll see you then. Like you just kind of have to be wired that way. Wow. Chris, I'll be interested to see what you do here at the seventh pick. You think I'm going to get funky? There's one obvious pick. There's a couple sleepers. Uh, who do you have? Josh Boone. No. <laughs> no, I'm going to go Rudy. And I think Rudy is an interesting uh, person to pair with JJ. Uh, both coming out of uh, relatively... St- I mean, JJ obviously had a more storied college career. But Rudy was great at UConn. And he comes into the league. And I feel like immediately... Well, pretty soon after he gets into the league, becomes a poster child for an outmoded style of basketball. And... Uh, kind of never really finds the place that really took advantage of his skills. I don't think he was ever going to have that McGrady gear, but it was clearly a scorer built in that mold and maybe just wasn't good enough to deserve all those touches and had a game that was really 18 feet and in at a time when the game kept moving out and out and out. From 08 to 2017, first basically 10 years of his career, Throwing out his rookie year. He's 19 and six, 34% from three. No all stars, no all NBA teams. And I, I think you made the key point. He's involved in two trades that really frame the last 15 years of the league. The first one is the actual draft day trade where Daryl trades the rights to Rudy Gay for Shane Battier, a trade that nobody, type of trade nobody ever made. There, there's really only a couple examples like, in the late 70s, Philly traded George McGinnis for Bobby Jones. And the real NBA people knew how good Bobby Jones was. He was an incredible defensive forward. He was an ABA legend, all that stuff. But George McGinnis was like a quote-unquote superstar, only he wasn't when you really picked it apart. And you looked at him, he was like a ball stopper. He couldn't guard anybody. It's kind of redundant with Dr. J. And they trade for Bobby Jones, and it's this awesome trade. Rudy Gay on paper, made a ton of sense with McGrady and Yao, right? It's like, great, yeah. here's our third scorer. And Daryl was looking at it differently. It's like, we Shane Battier, great corner three guy, uh, awesome defender, won't need the ball. I don't need to get him touches and just looked at it a different way. So that was the first trade. The second one happened when I was on NBA Countdown in 2013. Memphis just dumped him to Toronto and basically got back the Jose Calderon, Tayshaun Prince contracts, Ed Davis, and created some cap space. And we went on the show, and it was the biggest argument we had in the regular season. It wasn't like angry, but it was we had Magic and Wilbon on one side, me on the other, and Jalen kind of in the middle are arguing about this trade. And they were killing Memphis for throwing away the season because Memphis was a playoff team. Yeah. And a potential contender. And it was like, what are they doing? Why would they do this? And at that point, we had enough advanced metric stuff. Like at Grantland, we were really ahead. I feel like we were really ahead of the game those first couple of years with the way we were covering basketball. And we had Zach Lowe. I don't remember if we had Goldsberry at this point. And there was a lot of early data about Rudy Gay. Like this guy actually doesn't really help your team. It's, it's actually empty calories. Um, they might actually be better off redistributing the shots that he was getting to other people. And we argued about this on the show, like really, really, really vociferously. And I got to say, I ended up winning because Memphis made the conference finals that year. Partly, this was a classic Ewing theory trade. House, you were in all along. You never liked Rudy Gay. Dating back well, to UConn. 
the thing that made that trade work for Memphis was Tayshon. Tayshon yeah. basketball IQ through the roof. I mean, talk about a guy. You know, we I've I've been in the same place as him before. Walked up, you know, next to him. If he's ever weighed more than 175 pounds in his life, I, I don't know when it when it was. Um, but that guy is so smart and such a good chemistry guy, and he was a perfect complement to that Memphis team. And Memphis got you know better uh, uh, by subtraction by getting Ray a ball. I mean, gay. Okay, sorry, a ball stopper out of the mix. Right, ball stopper. They got more minutes for Tony Allen. Tayshawn comes in as like kind of the the glue guy, a little baddie esque. It's a really smart trade. And it's funny because all the smart basketball people got it. And all the old school basketball people are like, you can't give up Rudy Gay, man. He's got end of the game. That's who your go-to guy is. And it's like, actually, none of the stats back that up. We had crunch time stats at that point. And he was terrible. Yeah, I think and, that we, but we was like, it, it was the transition from having arguments about guys with albatross contracts to having arguments about guys with empty numbers. And yeah. that was really hard to get over where you're like, look, man, 19 points a game in the NBA is hard. Like that is not an easy thing to do, especially even to average it for multiple years like that. But at the end of the day, if you think Rudy Gay is one of your best players, your team has a hard ceiling. Well, it was also an old school way of thinking about things, right? Because I remember Magic and I, Magic, I thought we got a really good year out of him in a lot of ways, but he was still had that old school thinking sometimes of like, you get a guy like Rudy Gay, you can go to him in the last two minutes. And I remember being on TV being like, how hard do I fight with him on this? Because all the data says this isn't true. It's actually not a guy you want to go to in, in the last two minutes of a game. He doesn't, he doesn't deliver. Um, but I think you look at the stuff that's happening during this beginning part of the 2010s and the data is starting to get really good and the teams that had the data and real access to it um, started to make smart decisions. And this leads to the Harden trade. This is Daryl going all in on Harden as a superstar because he's looking at these numbers and being like, well, what would happen if he played 38 minutes instead of 28? And what would happen if he started going the line more? And what happened? What happens if he if I build the right team around him? So anyway, Rudy Gay, just weirdly involved in these two pivotal NBA moments that I think kind of personify where and we it, went. It's the last so strange years. that he winds up on the team that we've historically thought of as one of the more progressive teams in the league. Is he? He's now on. Him and Lamarcus are now on the Spurs, kind of <laughs> as these dinosaurs of an of a bygone era. So he's he's second in this draft and points scored, he scored almost 16,000 points and he's a career 17 a game guy. He bounces around a little bit. He goes Toronto, then Sacramento goes and gets him. He averaged 20 a game in Sacramento for the first two years he was there. Then, then when San Antonio got him, that's when everybody was like, all right, what's going on here? And San Antonio is just trying to zig when everyone else is zagging. And I think that's how partly how they got into trouble. Cause it's like, don't really, maybe don't zig on this one. Yeah. Maybe the zag is where we should be uh, with, with putting together a roster. So they get in trouble house. You're in the clock with eight. I am going to complete the trifecta here of taking guys that are still playing and uh, confessing up a little bit of recency bias. I want PJ Tucker here. Um, and it is uh, another guy 
who, uh, like Chris's pick of Kyle Lowry, got to be patient <laughs> because P.J. Tucker was out of the league with, within a year of, of being drafted. Um, and it took him six years. He, he visited places like uh, Israel and, and the Ukraine and Greece and Italy and, and Germany. So he had, you know, very well-traveled, a, a terrific travel resume. He uh, was, was signed by the Suns in 2012, the uh, D'Antoni small ball era, and he's made a whole career out of that, and it's a damn good career for a guy that's 6'5", 245 pounds, that Houston plays at center. I mean, I, I love the 2012 to 2020 PJ Tucker. And I think in view of all the guys that are around him in this draft, I've, I'm, I like this spot for him. I remember when he started to thrive in Phoenix, which I, Dan Tony was gone at that point. Cause he went to the Knicks, but it, they were still kind of in that mode of, you know, little, little small ball, little, small little ball fun to watch. Like, like, um, and he was one of those guys who was really good kind of secretly if you had league pass, but it wasn't, wasn't ever discussed, but he would always jump out when you watch the Suns. like, man, the PJ Tucker's a badass. I like that guy. Yeah. I'd love to see him on a good team. He became one of those guys. Cause he spends basically four, four years in Phoenix. Nothing's really going on. But then when he goes to Toronto, um, when they traded for him at the deadline and Toronto was a real contender at that point, it was like, Oh, this is, that's a, that's a good one. That's, I'm excited to see him on a good team. And then it finally happens with Houston. It's funny, though. There, there's really not a basketball reference page like this because he's 35 now. But to have the one rookie year and then five straight did not plays because <laughs> you're in Europe. And as Hal said, Israel, Ukraine, back to Israel, Greece, Italy, Germany. I, it's, I, it's honestly unprecedented for a basketball reference page. And the league moves in his way. He moves his way in a bunch of different ways. And, too, and, and again, it's it, it's almost the theme of this podcast that the league moves in Daryl's way because there's another guy to pa pass through Maury Ball, Ball University here. Amazing. I, I To be one year and out as a rookie. Oh, he had some G League stuff too, House. 07, a lot of G League. Do you remember the trade? The Toronto trade? February, I do not. February deadline? Well, Phoenix got a got a mother load. I didn't realize. Uh, Jared Sullinger, a 2017 second rounder, a 2018 second rounder. Yikes. <laughs> All right, I'm on the clock at nine. You know what? Fuck everybody. I'm taking Andrea Barkley. <laughs> what? Yeah. You, you know what? He's not a bust. <sighs> the whole Andrea Bargnani is a bust thing is bullshit. It's not accurate. And it is accurate. No, it's not. It's not accurate. I'm going to make the case. Go ahead. First of all, he played 10 years. Um, He averaged 21 a game one year. In 2011, his fifth year in the league, 21.4 a game. From 2009 to 2012, he's basically 19 a game. Um. Decent three-point shooter every once in a while. I thought he was feisty. He had, There was a little Italian feisty edge to him. And I'm not really sure what happened because I remember when the Knicks, when the Knicks traded for him, I remember kind of liking the trade. 
being like, oh, that that's cool. That's somebody, you know, you, he could spread the floor for Carmelo, stuff like this. And now I think because he failed with the Knicks, there's been this revisionist history that he wasn't a good pro. The reality was he he wasn't a bad pro. Even on the Knicks for two years, he's averaging 13 and 14 a game. He's playing 27, 29 minutes a game. He wasn't a bust is my point. And if I can get him at the 10th pick, uh, I'm happy. Or ninth pick, I'm happy. I, In I, this shitty draft. Yeah, that I think that the, the funny part is, is that like, it's hilarious to hear you say that. And then when you look beneath him, it's kind of like, oh, right. Like, who else are you really going to pick? Right. The only the, thing I'll say nice about Bargnani is um, in 2012, we were all in Orlando for the uh, All-Star game. And Andrea was there not to play. But I will say this. He stayed in the same hotel complex as us. And his girlfriend was absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. It was, I, 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 I try and be a decent person and not be a stare with the mouth open person. I just, it was a, it was a long stare. I didn't care. I needed to consume all of it. Well, he had, he had a little something, something there for a couple of years. Like he was Italian. He did have a little buffagoo. <laughs> Tiny bit of that. If um, if uh, Andrea was a Corleone son, who would he be? Little Sonny. Maybe I guess a little, little Fredo Sonny mix. Little Sonny? Little, uh, little, uh... No, he needed Sonny. If he had Sonny, he might have been a decent player. He might have been better than, you know, 10th in this crappy draft. Well, he, also, to, he also didn't live through his time in New York. I'm looking... I was just looking at my trade value list to make sure I never put him on a trade value thing i don't think i did i don't know he wasn't bad i i think if you average 21 points a game as a pro you weren't a bust i'm sorry so it's one of my rules uh chris you're on the clock with 10 and we just had a drop off yes it's a it's pretty dis. i mean part of me wants to be funny here but there's actually no punchlines. like there's nothing funny about saying oh i'll take uh i'll take booby or i'll take steve novak here i'm gonna go with thabo um, hmm. probably a little unfairly regarded now at this point as one of the reasons why the Thunder probably were not ultimately able to get over the hump, although there are other reasons, but like his inability to reliably knock down a jumper is, is one of them. Good um, defensive player though. But a great defensive player. And, and I think ultimately like those years in Oklahoma, he was a real, he was like an alpha defensive d- the defender. House, the draft just dropped off. You're at the 11th pick. I have nothing to add to that, to the uh, Thabo conversation. But nobody One even the, like disagrees with it. I mean, I guess you could go Ronnie Brewer there, but House, you're up. Well, we're launching a new Ringer podcast next month called the best 50 Swiss NBA players of all time. <laughs> and I don't want to step on that. So we'll save it for that. House, you're up at 11. I'll take JJ Barea. Uh, oh, that's who I had there. He's still in the league. <laughs> Another guy. I mean, this is it. I'm just taking the guys, you know, at, th- at this point, when your uh, choices are C.J. Watson and Ronnie Brewer and uh, who, who else? I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't have taken Bargnani. Uh, Steve Novak, I guess. I'll, I, I mean, you know, Berea um, played meaningful minutes, has been a terrific role player for Dallas and, and actually was a made a nice contribution for his little bit of time in Minnesota as well. It's clear that he has some team leader, um, kind of, uh, capacity and, and that he's well liked that, that coaches trust him. 
And at this stage with this group, that's enough for me. I thought he should have gone higher. Barea? Maybe a spot higher. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. In 2011, he plays 21 playoff games for a team that wins the title. 18.6 minutes a game. Nine points a game. And famously fucked with LeBron's head when Dallas had him guarding LeBron. And it was the all-time Jedi mind trick. Fuck you. You're not, you're not man enough to post this guy up. We dare you. And it like broke LeBron's brain for four finals games. It's like, another another goat advertisement. Yeah, well, that's tough. <laughs> 10, 10 or 11 are, are really like undermine the LeBron goat case. Um, but you know, he, he was he 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 didn't hurt them in those finals and if anything had a couple good moments, but he had a galvanizing effect on his teammates that I think we can't sleep on either. Where when he succeeded, it got the whole team fired up. Yeah. He's this little Puerto Rican guy. Yep. And if he made a big play in crunch time, like the whole bench like went bonkers. But I know he's a, a beloved teammate too. And I, I think he's one of those guys. He's still in the league, obviously. He's on Dallas. He's one of those guys that will stay a little like Udonis Haslam, where uh, he'll stay in the league three years after it's over just because he's so good to have on your team. So for the 11th pick, I think that's strong. Well, I'm up with the uh, 12th pick here. It's pretty grim. I'm going to go with Randy Foy, and here's my case. At his peak was like a fairly interesting coming off the bench guy. I remember on the 2012 clips, he was um, a third guard for them, 11 a game, five threes a game, 39% um, three-point shooter. Was a pretty good three-point shooter in his at his peak. And most important, career is 36.6 three-point. Most important, House's dumbass team traded the number five <laughs> pick in the 2009 draft for him and Mike Miller. So he actually did have value. No, House, he didn't. Go ahead. No, go he ahead. didn't. He was he was he was terrible in Washington. And I don't know if it was because he didn't want to be here um, or whatever the situation was. Uh, but, you know, he he is, you know, look up journeyman. Uh, now he played. What does he play? 700 games, 750 regular season games. Um, but I, I unfairly hold against him what the franchise, the position the franchise put him in by basically trading away the opportunity to have Steph Curry. And I'll never forgive well, you would have taken for that. Rubio or Steph Curry, one of those guys. Yes. So this brings me to, uh, I want to, I, I'd been saving my dad for the right moment. <laughs> My dad was so upset this draft when they, this is from my draft diary, when they traded the seventh pick for a package highlighted by Sebastian Telfair. My dad's quote was, he's a five foot 11 point guard. You know what he's going to be with more playing time? A five foot 11 point guard. I saw him in that documentary, by the way. Not only would I not want him on my team, I wouldn't want him in my house. Um, Fair, fair character assessment because he was in multiple gun things after that. So that happened. My dad loved Randy Foy. When Randy Foy goes in the Celtics spot, my dad goes, this sucks. I really liked Randy Foy as did everyone else sitting at the draft. This sucks. My whole night's ruined. I might take tomorrow off from work. I'm really <laughs> bummed out. I can't believe this. Some quotes from my dad. And then on Rondo, he said, 
after they got Rondo. So we have two new point guards. One of them's 5'11", and the other one can't shoot. And I'm supposed to be happy about this? He was enraged. <laughs> it turns out he was. <laughs> yeah. So um, the Randy Floyd people did like. And Dickie V, when he came on, and was like, this guy can be Dwayne Wade. It was ludicrous, but it, it was said by somebody who uh, had a basketball analyst job. Yeah. So anyway, I'm happy. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to get him with uh with my pick. All right, Chris, you're on the clock. We have three picks left. This is going to be really brutal. Do we really have to do them? Yeah, we got to get to 15. Oh. Uh, I you know I'm gonna go Novak. Ah, that was gonna be mine. Yeah, I like the belt. That that's about all. I mean, like Ronnie Brewer never had anything as cool as the belt. So I'm gonna go with Steve Novak. <laughs> Really good wingman during Lynn's sanity. Yeah. I, like great. in a couple of the celebrations, it was really right there, Bundini Brown style. Insanity <laughs> was getting his insanity on. I another one of those guys that probably born 10 years too too soon, right? Yeah. Cause you 43 percent from three for his career is is quite good. It's weird that the Spurs never took him for I was a test just drive. gonna say he seems like he's the kind of guy who has two rings if he plays for the Spurs. Oh, they did give him. I'm sorry. My apologies. They did give him a test drive in 2011. <laughs> did they? So, yeah. So his two Knicks seasons. Jesus. Yeah, there's a case he might have gone too late here. Uh, his two Knicks seasons, 19 a game. I'm sorry, 19.7 minutes a game. And he shoots 44.5% from three on 4.7 threes a game for two solid years. And was kind of dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, that's it was, was a garden favorite. Good value, Chris. Thanks. House, your last pick, number 14. I uh, am taking this player just because I want to make this immensely juvenile and stupid and obvious joke, and I like booby. That's it. I'm just taking Daniel Gibson here. 397 career games, uh, 16 win shares, um, you know, played important moments uh, with the Cavaliers and his nickname is Booby and that's all I have to say about him. Yeah, so in the 07 playoffs, he plays 20 minutes a game for our finals team and shoots 40% from three. The 08 playoffs, 25.8 minutes a game for that team and shot 45% from three and basically spread the floor, couldn't do anything else. That's it. Great value house <laughs> for my last pick. Um, I thought about Sayer Sine just as a project, <laughs> maybe a couple more years working on the layup on the right foot. I don't know. Um, I, I guess Ty Thomas, you're back in love, your guy. And let me look at who's who needs a guy you can go to war with, Bill. Don't think twice. There's some Jordan Farmar potential. Oh, I know who I'm taking. I'm not taking Ty Thomas. Fuck that guy. Uh, I'm taking Leon Poe. Okay. Sure. Leon Poe with the Celtics in the 2008 playoffs, 12 minutes a game, uh, played every game, and has an iconic finals game. I think it was game two. There's one, either game one or game, game two was the Leon Poe game, I think. 
when he just kind of comes in and lays the smackdown on the Lakers and does his thing. The guy had like no ACLs and uh, did his thing. You, you guys aren't as excited about this as well. I'm looking at this and I, I'm trying to see if if it's wrong. I believe he has the highest win share per 48 minutes of anybody in this draft. <laughs> I think I'm looking at this correctly. This Here it is. is. Game game two. He put his 14 and a half minutes, 21 points, 13 free throw attempts. Game two against the Lakers. Single-handedly swings the game. So Bill, is this when you I'm... announced the new Ringer podcast feed, the rewatch of Pose? <laughs> the way that's... <laughs> Just uh... all Leon Pose games. <laughs> Listen, if you we get to like... <laughs> Year three of the quarantine, the rewatch of pose is is in play. So is 50 greatest Swiss players ever. Both of those ideas could happen. Uh, yeah, I think we covered everything. What a bizarre draft. So we went in, in order. Uh, Lowry, Aldridge, Rondo, Millsap, Roy, Reddick, Gay, Tucker, Bargnani, Berea. I'm sorry, Bargnani, Cephalosha, Berea, Foy, Novak. Leon Poe, if you just do those top six where they were actually picked 221, 47, 6, 11, 8, 35. So this is a weird one. A lot of variants. How somehow the Wizards, we didn't make fun of them in this draft before we go. Is there, is there some sort of Wizards mistake we could they, have grasped? Well, they onto? took, and I, the, the mistake was uh, at the 18th. Uh, Spot Rondo and Lowry and Paul Millsap. Like, there's a bunch of PJ Tucker. There's a bunch of guys still out there that that could have immediately contributed. They drafted a guy. I think he's Ukrainian, uh, Alexei Pesharov, whose best attribute, the number one thing that he contributed to the franchise, is being a dead ringer for Stewie from Family Guy. That that wow. he, he looks. Yeah, every picture of this guy. Is is a dead ringer for Stewie, and I think that's really all I can say about him. <laughs> he was seven feet tall. He lasted three years and never played more than 10 minutes a game. The Wizards didn't have a great track record with international drafting. <laughs> <laughs> to say the, the least. The Jan Vesely uh, that's, experience. That's, that's exactly right. Fellas, I really enjoyed myself. Thanks for redrafting the 2006 NBA draft with me. I just want to ask to be on a good draft sometime with you. You want to be on a good one? I can do a good draft. <laughs> okay. Well, right, he's redraftable. He'll consider it. All right. I'll, now I'll you're, ne request. you're never going to be on a good draft now. <laughs> that was the 2006 redraftables on the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast. Stay tuned for 2007 with me and Ryan Rossello on this feed later in the week. Until then. <laughs>